0: Well, welcome to the Totem Realty Advisors podcast. Um, I have no idea how this came to be, but hopefully over the next few episodes, we'll learn a little bit more about that. But I'm the founder and president of a boutique real estate firm here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm very proud of what we've accomplished over the last two years and excited to share a little bit of our thoughts on how real estate should happen for you and uh, for your clients throughout uh, the Pittsburgh region. And throughout the country, uh, our tagline is Solutions for the Whole Process. And we're really excited to bring to you some thoughts about real estate, life, bourbon. And um, I'd like to introduce you to my partners here, Paige and Michael. So without further ado, Mr. Castle.
1: Uh, my name is Michael Castle. Um, I have been in commercial real estate since the Reagan administration. Uh, and I've been with uh, Totem for three years since the time we started and uh, equally as excited about what we've accomplished over the last three years. It's been a great start, especially going through a pandemic and um, looking forward to more.
2: Going through the pandemic was great?
1: <laughs> Especially after going through a pandemic, yeah. this is my first pandemic page. In and your first my,
2: podcast my
1: senior, this Look is my at first that. podcast. It wasn't
2: just thirty-year-old men picking up a new hobby of podcasting during the pandemic. So
0: yeah, you just meant that we survived the pandemic yes. as a real estate. Guy. I know. Yeah.
1: Um, so um, let's see if uh, we can survive the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the wild.
0: real can question. A podcast, but
2: anyways. Well, um, I'll tell you my name, and then you can blame the podcast on me. Um, my name is Paige Myers. I'm the noob here. Um, I have been with Totem for two years, as of yesterday or Friday.
0: Woo, woo. cheers um, to that!
2: Yeah, um, and that is my the extent of my experience in the commercial real estate world. Um, so, uh, to your question, Kevin, of how we are here doing a podcast, uh, because I think like. Obviously, I speak for the group when I say this is pretty much all of our worst nightmare. <laughs> um, but that being said, in our Tuesday meetings, um, we often, our team meetings, we often have these, you know, two to three hour long sessions where we talk about the work that we're working on, the new projects, ideas for, you know, prospecting, marketing, etc., cetera, et cetera, how we can help our clients with creative solutions. And um, pretty much every week that just turns into a session where I ask a million questions um, in an effort to gain a better understanding of this industry and the things that we're doing. And I think looking back on that, as I was reflecting on my two years with the team, um, I have amassed a wealth of knowledge that I don't think a lot of other people who are that new to the industry have had the opportunity to learn. So, thought being, if we started to record our nonsensical conversations and added bourbon into the mix, um you know if we can get three people to listen to this maybe half of one of them can learn a thing or two that they didn't know before
0: that sounds good are there ground rules i think we need some ground
2: rules. yeah you have to stand between michael and i at all times (laughs) (laughs) that's rule number one
0: rule number one
2: um i will try very hard not to make boomer jokes (laughs) i would ask that michael try to reciprocate that the lack of millennial jokes
0: non-millennial jokes
2: yeah uh I think it would be liberal millennial jokes, so. Yeah, that's probably a good Um
1: idea. I can okay. eliminate the millennial altogether. The liberal I'm not so <laughs> sure about, but. And After the first glass of bourbon. <laughs> Which
0: is no politics. Yes. Yeah. Because Paige and Michael both know that if politics come up, Kevin leaves the room. Yes. And ends the conversation quickly, so. Noted. <laughs> Noted.
2: Um, but that being said, um, the one thing that we do all agree on is bourbon.
0: Amen to um, that.
2: As you can see behind us, um, we uh, frequently bond over um, a glass of our favorite spirit. So we thought, in order to not make this super stuffy and commercial real estatey, um,
0: where's our blazers and our ties? Come on. Our
2: pins. Yeah, our lapel our pins. pins.
0: <laughs> our lapel pins. Where the heck are our lapel
2: pins? <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: there were a lot of lapel
1: pins today.
2: Come on. Oh, there were Lots a lot of lapel pins, of lapel today.
1: pins today. Yes.
2: Uh, but no, to not bourbon. really on brand right. here. Um, so yeah, we're gonna talk about bourbon every week, a different bourbon every week, um, and then talk and about something anything hopefully. Whenever gets out
0: of bounds, we're gonna, bourbon is gonna bring us back yeah, to a new topic. The
2: bourbon of the week will be our safe word. Right. So uh, this week it's Russell's, mm-hmm. Russell's Reserve. And the idea, because it's a new year, and we just elected, or just inaugurated a new mayor in Pittsburgh, we thought we would use the opportunity to talk about, Kevin, you want to give him your, you want to give him your title?
0: Oh, yes. Red tape, rubber stamps, and Russell's reserve.
2: What an alliteration. Doesn't
0: that ring well? Yeah. But in reality, I think you meant to talk about the bureaucracy of real estate development, how complicated it gets.
2: Yeah, that's um, from my experience, How where those conversations always go right. in this industry. Um, which I don't understand it. I mean, that's I think a lot of the questions that I have asked the two of you over the past two years. Um, like I'm still trying to understand why we're still here, like not, not like existentially, but why things that seem like, like we have cars that drive themselves being, like that technology is happening here in Pittsburgh, but we can't figure out how to make the licensing and inspections and permitting process bearable. Um, so the questions that I ask you, a lot of it is just my, me trying to get a grasp on why um, this stuff is still so difficult, in a town of like a lot of brilliant people and people who have been in this industry and and in this space for a very long time and why people just still groan when they think about having to go through the development process or anything that involves the city of Pittsburgh really. Um, So yeah, I like to talk about it because it seems like something that should be easy, seems like something we should have figured out by now, seems like something that would be mutually advantageous or could be mutually advantageous. and it's just still kind of a nightmare. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we joked about red tape and rubber stamps, but the reality is if you give um, a lot of people the power to approve or not approve a project, it creates uh, tension, and tension causes delays, and delays cost money. So it becomes a really uh, vicious cycle and a vicious circle. And over the years, it just continues to exacerbate itself to the point where there's lots of rubber stamps and uh, lots of brain damage to get through those rubber stamps. Um, So it's a complicated thing, and every real estate project bumps into it.
1: The original idea, obviously, was to protect the public and to control growth, give people a say on what's going on, but it's just gotten so out of hand. And it's not just Pittsburgh in particular, it's everywhere. Pittsburgh just has its own little nuances, and those are exacerbated by the fact that we have 96 neighborhoods here, and uh, they all get a say, and it also serves as a barrier to entry, but you know, my frustration is it is it prevents change. It prevents growth, and that's one of the things that, as a developer, it just gets harder and harder and harder to get things done. There are more requirements. There are more Uh, obstacles. There's more hurdles to clear. And I don't think they're done in in the form of trying to protect anybody. They're just more bureaucratic things that we should be talking about. And I think with the new mayor, I think he's a very pro-neighborhood mayor. So whatever power the neighborhood associations had on various projects, that's only become worse for the developers.
2: So is it and both of you have like touched on this. So do you think it's fair to say that um, the more people that the more people that get involved in the, the process, the more convoluted and difficult it gets? Or do you think it's that it has not been the right people that have gotten involved, where maybe it's people that are in governance and public service getting involved when they don't have background as to the real estate and the development side of it so they're only making decisions based on their frame of reference and not from the frame of reference of how can we meet in the middle and how can i how can we kind of bridge the gap between what's good for the neighborhood and what's good for the developer do you think so do you think it's that there's too many people involved or it's just not the right people that are involved
0: i think it's a combination of both and i think that um, a glaring example of the latter, meaning the not the right people being involved, um, is that on the mayor's transition team to step into office, while development in the neighborhoods were a core concept, literally there was not one person on the entire transition team who was in the real estate space. And I don't mean real estate developer, I mean real estate expert either public or private. Mm -hmm. So how do you have a transition into a new administration that wants to focus on community development and nobody at the table has any background in real estate? Uh, That's a problem. Coupled with, there are a lot of layers, right? To get a project through, you have the local, uh, very neighborhood perspective. You've got the city perspective. You have the county perspective and you have the state perspective. And then, oh, by the way, this amazing company or organization called the pennsylvania department of transportation um when you have four or five six layers of rubber stamps that you need to get in order for a project to get approved there's just too many people at the table
1: yeah and i don't think that as a developer i don't think anybody is is upset that you know you have to go in front of an engineer you have to do a traffic study you have to do meet building codes those are all very, very realistic expectations of doing any kind of project. It's when you kind of become political or giving someone control over the project that you intend to do, uh, whether that be a neighborhood association, whether that be a community association. Um, a council person. A council person. It's just, it, it's just adding a layer of someone that has a different agenda than, than something you're actually trying to accomplish.
2: Michael, you're goddamn <laughs> <laughs> <the> email notifications. <laughs> I barely heard Really? I, get it.
1: I was under I the impression me, that like with, therapy for me. It means business with, is happening. With so actual thing. new technology, I'm sure he can edit it out. <laughs> and the fact that uh, this is the first boomer joke and I'll make it, I don't know how to turn it off. So I'm just happy it rings. makes makes me realize i have to take my pills
2: (laughs) (laughs) maybe it's just your ears so you're just happy i mentioned it so you know it's not the case um no yeah i mean i just i think it's interesting because i mean um everything that we went through last year you know with um the the black lives matter and the discussion around equity and all of that stuff um and now you know I I love that we've elected our first black mayor in the city of Pittsburgh. Um, obviously, uh, Pittsburgh struggles with diversity, and I think that's a great step forward. But I also know that in um, the real estate space, and probably a lot of other um, you know business-centric spaces, when you when you start to talk about equity, and you start to talk about affor- affordable housing, um, there are a lot of unfortunately negative connotations that come to mind. Um, which I would love to see that change, but also to your point, when, when those are two of the main focal points of the new mayor's platform and he doesn't have anyone in real estate on his team, um, you know, I've heard mixed reviews, you know, developers and real estate professionals that are very optimistic and then others that are just kind of bracing for more of the same, really. Um, so I, th- I think that'll be interesting, the implications that uh, the new... Uh, what do you call it? Cause the word that's coming to my head is it regime is, and that's not right.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, definitely not regime. Definitely administration. Um, yeah. Brings to the table. I think to Michael's point earlier, I don't, I don't think there's a question of whether or not it will become more complicated to develop in the city of Pittsburgh. Um, you know, there is a lot of talk about a concept called inclusionary zoning that, um, they instituted in Lawrenceville. And, you know, it's, again, we're not gonna get political to talk about whether it's good or bad, but it's just a reality of where I think the city of Pittsburgh's headed. And um, it's another layer of complexity. I mean, they always, there's always the joke that developers are rich. I think developers are people who are just completely insane and willing to bang their heads against the wall all day, every day, because it is a slow, methodical grind um, that it takes a completely different personality for this is not, um, like true development from the ground up is something that requires a fortitude and a patience that very few people, um, have at their core and candidly totem, you know, we're not in the ground up development business because it, it does not suit our personality. Um, the brain damage is just too great. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned inclusionary zoning and um, for me and anyone who may listen to this that doesn't know what give me your best definition of inclusionary zoning.
1: Inclusionary zoning is it's a type of zoning approval, I'm gonna call it a proffer, for every market rate or for-profit unit that you deliver, you deliver as many or a certain number or a certain uh, percentage of um, uh, assisted, not necessarily assisted living, but affordable housing units. Um, Now, there's certain markets in Pittsburgh that do this all the time. The Hill, it's any development that occurs there. Pretty
2: much has to be mixed use.
1: It's going to be mixed use, mixed income, um, mixed income is mixed the key. Mixed income is mm-hmm. the key. And uh, it can be certain levels. There could be some form of uh, market rate. There could be some form of uh, assisted, and there could be some form of affordable. And usually that's the way that occurs. It's probably a great opportunity if that's something uh, that the mayor is going to focus on. I think areas like the Hill, I think areas like Laramore. Uh, they're they're going to see more opportunity and more growth and more potential from that. I think if you were to introduce it, let's say, downtown, and the mayor has said at this point in time, he would not consider it for downtown growth, but <clears throat> that might be something that gets in the way of uh, someone wanting to risk their capital down here. Um, see, it's just a different way of looking at it, but I think other cert- certain areas, It makes a lot of sense. If you have a very high land cost, let's say like you're experiencing in East Liberty, that might be the reason you prevent you from being able to come out of the ground with a project.
2: Now, so what about, so this is something that they've implemented in Lawrenceville. Um, Is that development existing and completed or is it in development still?
0: So effectively, it's like, what's the
2: timeline of this happening? Because the mayor did mention in several interviews, um, you know, how how Lawrenceville had already implemented it and it was phasing, creeping into Bloomfield, which, like, those are two thriving neighborhoods. So, what's the problem?
0: Well, thriving, I guess, is uh, based on perspective, right? So, if you're a, uh, low-income or moderate-income family, and you've lived in Lawrenceville your whole life, and now the cost of rent or the cost of a home has skyrocketed, probably doubled or tripled in the last 10 years, how do you continue to stay there? So, But if there's
2: an inclusionary zoning, that would, in essence, prevent that from happening, correct?
0: No, what it's going to prevent is the next new development is going to be forced to participate in some type of percentage-based development whereby x number of units and this is specific to multifamily Mm -hmm. um, rather than commercial but it's x number of units will be allocated towards different income classes and it's almost like on top of the existing zoning so you already have to deal with the fact that my property is owned residential or commercial or industrial the next level now is okay yes you do have the right to build a hundred units here but of the hundred units 20 of them or 30 of them or 50 of them i'm Making that up um, have to meet some mixed income levels, so it really um, it stalls development. Um, now it protects the people who were otherwise not going to be able to be
2: able stay to stay. There. Right, right? The, it prevents. It the displacement. very well could
1: prevent development, right? Simply because you've taken away from the developmental yield. If I have a hundred market rate. Uh, apartments, it's all based on this is sure. what the market rate is. Right. If I have 80 market rate apartments, but I'm going to deliver 100, I've, devol- I've lowered my yield, and that n- might not be something that can get a project out of the ground. So that could be something that just never materializes simply because of the barrier to entry of making this happen. So it's a great idea in certain areas with low land costs, or great access to land but in for example in oakland
0: dense urban areas it would be
1: impossible yeah so it's a it's a
0: or it creates a vicious cycle whereby then the government needs to step in with subsidy to offset the developer's risk that he can't afford to deal with the inclusionary zoning
2: well and once i mean when you when you have the inclusionary zoning in place and then it's it's dictated to the developer what portion or what number of units has to be low income or what? It, moderate what in,
0: income or then they
2: could be, it would be like there would be a voucher program, right, where they would accept Section 8 and there is some kind, that is a subsidy, right, essentially?
1: Section 8 would end up being the user of the low income u- unit. It delivers more inventory for a Section 8 user. But it lowers the yield. But isn't for that the about Section Eight
2: is like a voucher program where there's some kind of credit or something is subsidized or by the government or together. credited to the owner of that development, correct? That is for correct. allowing Section Eight in.
0: But Section Eight is a very specific type of Yes. Yeah, so that
2: now it's my next question: What's <laughs> the difference? This is also not a super cheery topic, but what's the difference? Uh, this
0: was not where I saw this conversation going, Glenn. that's Me either,
2: but, and we'll, we'll pivot in a minute here. <laughs> but what's the difference between Section 8 and affordable housing, or is that one in the same?
1: Well, Section 8 is you can have market rate housing that you choose to participate in a Section 8 program. You just have to accept less money because uh whatever the housing authority is of that particular area they take a calculation of market rents and said this is how much this unit is worth now if you're getting more than that they're not going to pay any more than that and in certain section 8 programs
0: which is a federal program yeah some of them
1: some of them the tenant can assist in paying and and other programs the tenant cannot this is as much as you can charge and there are probably I don't know the answer to this but there're probably 10 or 15 various housing assistance type programs.
2: So there are different levels within the program. There are different the levels, correct. Right. And so then another question like when you're talking about, you know, downtown or Lawrenceville or those areas where the land acquisition or the 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 basis is much higher um, do you think that the cost the the gap can be bridged? Because there's higher demand for luxury units in those areas. Like, you know, the demand to live in very nice apartments downtown is still fairly high. Really high. Uh, Lawrenceville still incredibly high. East Liberty, you know, with everything that's going on, you know, closer to the university is blowing up. So could they just charge more for the non-affordable, the more luxury units and just... Because like, really, what's the difference between saying this is someone who would not pay $1,600 a month for an apartment? What's the difference between 1600 and 1800 And then that could bridge the gap, that additional $200 of what you're losing on the affordable units. Like, do you think it will just drive the the yeah. price of the nicer, non cost controlled apart- units to be high? Because it's on a it's on a per unit basis, not on a per project basis.
1: No, because it is on a per project basis from the development perspective. And what you're talking about is the, the elasticity of the price. I don't know what the difference is between 1600 and 1800 is. I mean, I do know, but I don't know how it reflects the market how the consumer i don't know how the consumer is going to look at it and maybe 1600 is a reach for that consumer and 1800 makes them choose someplace else the point is that it's an artificially manipulated number and it's another barrier to entry in both housing and uh and development and isn't the whole concept of it that you're trying to provide incentives for more housing not reasons for people not to develop properties Th- this is just one of the items that's in addition to the pen DOTs, the engineering the ura the zoning every other restriction that's placed DEP, on land right. dp lending in and of itself it's at the end of the day these projects that come out of the ground they have to be financeable they have to provide a return for the investors and And if they don't it becomes charity
2: but with that though i mean don't you think like towards the end of last year like esg started becoming the buzzword Mm -hmm. like how are we going to make things more equitable how are we going to we not me how you know (laughs) well i don't have any patience so i will never be a property developer um But there's a lot of emphasis on ESG and investing um, in equitable, you know, uh, equitable projects. So don't you think that this could just be maybe like a chain reaction to where lenders will also change the way they assess the financial viability of these projects, and so, that there there will be some incentive like incentivization. I don't even know if that's a word. It, there'll be some incentive for lenders to lend on these projects that are going to have a more equitable, affordable housing component baked into the plan.
1: Well, the last time that uh, lenders were given, I can incentives, always see that
2: smirk on your face. Uh, you're no, gonna say. it was. It
1: kind of goes back to the Community Reinvestment Act, which is a long time ago, and uh, it that's what eventually turned into the housing bubble you know everything has a downstream consequence when you start talking about this thing uh, if you start putting incentives or restrictions or whatever however you want to look at them they're they're going to it, it, the developments lose their organic appeal you're 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 artificially manipulating something that there is a solution that could take place normally and i i it's it's a lot more complex than we have with the podcast.
0: complicated, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, if but there's anything I've exists. learned in all of these discussions, it's that there's no, there definitely isn't an easy answer. My very naive opinion of like why isn't this easier? Because um, it's a really complex problem, and if you make one person happy, you're pissing one other person off. Um,
0: and the I, banks are already um, incentivized to reinvest in the community, and. Already lend on projects that otherwise wouldn't happen,
1: but for that forced reinvestment. Um, but and if you're a large enough company, you know, uh, being socially just is a lot easier because you can bury those costs and other things. If you're the guy in Lawrenceville that has a piece of property that he wants to rehab into eight units, his interest is completely looking at it. And this is from a greed perspective. I want to get the most out of this. And now the decision for him to come out of the ground or keep it as it is, perhaps something that is non-performing, perhaps something that is approaching blight, but he's still making a lot of money on it. That can be the decision. Do I go ahead and sell this? Do I go ahead and do this myself? Do I allow somebody else to do it? What are the barriers for me to actually accomplish that and doesn't that prevent the growth doesn't that prevent the additional tax basis to do all sorts of wonderful things with the tax dollars that they do create but it's just and i would say that there's probably a lot more smaller developers especially in the 96 neighborhoods that we're dealing with certainly not necessarily ones that we deal with on a day-to-day basis than the got large guys doing a 100 unit projects that's what i was going to say
2: do you think that this will and i mean not not that um, I'm trying to say that the small developers are going to be the victims here, but do you think that this will drastically impact the the small developers who are trying to make a nest egg for themselves because of the just the hurdles they have to come over, and they don't have as much uh, 100%. arbitrage, really, to work with, whereas the larger developers who figure out the process who have added <coughs> capital will say and the manpower behind their operations because they have the scale. So it will make it easier for them to develop and more difficult or higher barriers to entry for the smaller, maybe one off or like couple property developers.
1: I think for the most part it is the 100%, but then like I said, there are certain areas of opportunity that the ground cost is low and you can use those things to your advantage. Larimer, the hill. These are areas that they should be being developed now.
2: You're really big on Larimer. You mentioned that like four times. This is just well, the hill's in the largest Larimer that
1: we have in, in in Pittsburgh. For the most part, it's located as close as you can get to downtown as possible. There's great transit that goes through there, a couple of main arteries. Did
2: you just buy property in Laramie?
1: <laughs> I did not buy property there. But I'm just saying these are buy places... in West Virginia. Come no, on. No, these are places there's where... There's no zoning down
2: there. No, there's, well, there's, <laughs> a, there's a... We should
0: talk about that. That's
2: what really <laughs>
1: There's a great opportunity. Well, developing in, in, in West Virginia is a fairly easy thing to do. And this is a great example of the putting... <laughs> putting people there there are only x amount of developers that are in west virginia and the additional restrictions that the city has put on regarding zoning have made people move outside of the city confines so consequently you have huge development apartment projects shopping centers that are outside of the city of morgantown that don't have to go through zoning they don't have to pay business and occupancy taxes they don't have the restriction of someone you know, uh, crawling up their butts with a microscope, all right, and they can be on the other side of the city line, and no rules whatsoever. So what happens, the developer votes with his feet, he leaves downtown, he goes right outside, he gets the benefits of the Morgantown marketplace, and none of the obligation. So you you have that issue that's occurring right now. But, but let's and how- put that
0: like in a real world example. So right now, we've got a client who is doing business both uh, from a development perspective in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, and in West Virginia. And the development timeline for anything in southwestern Pennsylvania is at a minimum nine months. I would argue it's probably closer to 12 to 18 months for all of the red tape and the rubber stamps that have to happen, that exact same project. I mean, these are cookie cutter projects is a 90- to 120-day approval process in West Virginia. I mean, it is apples
1: and oranges. From purchase to being in the ground, 120 days.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I get it. But so, how do we get there? I mean, like, how... Is it just because there's more land to still be developed in West Virginia? Is it... I, like, what is the... Why is it like that?
1: Well, I think they just have less restrictions because their bureaucracies have not been built up to be an industry. I would imagine if we were developing in, I don't know, Somerset County, or further out away from Pittsburgh, we'd have a, a much shorter gestation of the development time.
0: you still got PennDOT though. Yeah, I don't,
1: I don't know that Penn provided PennDot really provided provided that you're on a main PennDOT road. Right. If you're not on a PennDOT road, it might be as simple as sub- submitting a. A building permit. Again, I haven't looked at that, but there's no reason to go out there because you don't have the demographic that you have.
2: But so, is there? You think it's just like density-driven? Like, do you think there'll be a point where the development pushes out from Morgantown in West Virginia? It's going to get dense, and then they're going to come up with it, or you think they just don't care? Well, I I think pee on that tree and it's yours. I (laughs) think.
1: I think if you were really to try to come up with an answer, is is there a consistency with what you have to do? I think developers uh, you know, and investors, they, they don't necessarily, they don't like the rules, but they don't mind them if the fact that if they were all consistent and they knew if I make a decision today right. by obeying these rules or trying to modify this one with a variance or a different use permit, that I could have a really good confidence that I'm going to get from here to here in nine months. I can factor that into my build cost. Yeah.
2: Which that... Ugh that is wild to go ahead
1: sorry well certain areas and i'm going to use northern virginia as a perfect example they probably have a lot more rules than pennsylvania does but they're consistent about them and i know that if i start a project here in 120 days or 150 days i have a permit and it's going to cost me x amount of dollars but i know that i'm going to be allowed to do that build yeah and
2: that's what blows my mind about pittsburgh i mean In my two years' time in this industry, I've probably called um, the PLI three to four times to try to figure out on behalf of a client.
0: PLI stands for?
2: Permits, Licenses, and Inspections. There you go. I'm going to come up with a better acronym that's more accurate, (laughs) though. because And not to speak disparagingly of the humans that work there, because I do not envy them that seems like a terrible position to be in. But honest to God, like you call them and you try to ask questions about like, how does this process work? And like, well, it depends. Like what side of the bed did so-and-so wake up on today? And, you know, is it over 60% humidity? Because then this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. Like no one can just give you, like their own department almost doesn't seem to know how the process plays out. And how things go but it's like that seems like a problem (laughs) how can they i
0: mean this is not an endorsement in any way shape or form i don't even know them personally but the walnut capital folks who are about to transform oakland i mean literally transform 17 acres of the most probably important real estate in western pennsylvania And arbitrarily, while they're in the middle of their permitting process, the mayor decides to put a 30-day pause on the process. How how does that happen? I I don't... I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. Michael's been doing this for a long time. And there are no answers for what that looks
2: like. Well, I mean... And I I don't know exactly what part of the process they were in, but like...
0: The finish line. Like, legitimately the finish line.
2: Because, I mean, the, the time frames... That you are given when you're applying for a permit or uh, of any type seem very arbitrary. It's like, the, yeah, you, you'll know within three weeks, but then six weeks go by, and it's just like they can just be like, "Sorry, we're busy," and that's acceptable, even though it's costing so many people so much money. There, there's no ramifications right. if they can't get the paperwork processed and the approvals.
1: There's no urgency on there,
2: right? Process. So like. That's well, it's
1: back to your
0: question of. So again, it. like
2: a, a, at least he stated audibly and in, in print, like that it's a thirty-day pause to let people catch up because
0: no I've worked on it, project it's turn into a six months.
2: I'm loss. sure it's, but yeah, but <laughs> I've worked on projects where to not hear anything and to not get a return phone call or an answered email for thirty days is standard. Right.
0: Well, and I mean, this is back to your point about will it wipe out the small developer? And I said one hundred percent. Walnut Capital will survive this. Like, even if it's a six month pause, they will come up with a solution. Their project will still happen. Right. If you were trying to build an eight unit development, it was your second, third, fourth project, and this happened to
1: you. You're it's game over. Yeah. Don't forget it. Right. Um, it just yeah. Because the person who's that in in that position, they're probably already invested into the ground. They're probably uh, okay. already invested into the building. Well, they I mean, even just, I
2: mean, we've seen it, even just the the engineering fees and the legal fees and the, the due diligence before you even make an offer on a property, even that.
1: Thank you, sir. Yep.
2: I need a new ice cube. <laughs> well, I still have a half glass of bourbon. I'm fine, actually.
1: Okay. Um,
0: we can probably fix the ice cube thing, too, when you're ready. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's... It's really crazy. I mean, I, I have heard from, and not personally, but just panels that I've attended and things like that, um, developers who have all but said directly that of the cities they develop in and the cities they have active projects in, Pittsburgh is the least friendly to do business in. And, you know, for as much as we tout ourselves as an innovation hub and things like that. I just don't see like it sounds great, and uh, it's it's giving the city great PR, and I think it is putting you know an otherwise tertiary city on the map because of like the access to intellectual capital we have, and but that like it just seems like we're at like the can I swear can I say that yeah I can say that. it's like want. the like the well I'll say this it's like the put your money where your mouth is thing like again if we can, we have all of this intellectual
1: capital. I'd love to know what the swear was going <laughs> <there> to be. There
2: have to be. It probably started with an F because otherwise I wouldn't have asked. <laughs> uh,
0: I mean, it gets back. So we were at the ACG um, annual economic forecast day and Bill Flanagan's talking about um, the total amount of employable people. So basically the job market that exists in Pittsburgh in 2022 is exactly the same number of people the day he started his uh, television show in 1990. So all of the gains in total employment base that happened over the last 30 years has been been eradicated, like zero. Um, Courtesy of COVID, unfortunately. Um, So big retirement, big population move, all that. But um, I think we live in this real estate world and it's really complicated and really messy, lots of red tape, lots of stamps. Um, very lots of Russell's Reserve lots of Russell's
2: Reserve Um, (laughs) or maybe not enough Russell's Reserve
0: but that's just a microcosm of the overall doing business in Pittsburgh and most of our clients are privately held small businesses and if to a T you talk to them even in the tech firms and um, the software companies the biggest thing in the way is the population and this isn't really about real estate we're getting off topic when we should get back to real estate, but the lack of population is driven by how hard it is to do business in Pittsburgh. And because it's hard to do business in Pittsburgh, it's really hard to attract people and therefore it's really hard to employ people. And I mean, I've heard some crazy stats that the robotics row that exists here, which is second really to none other than San Francisco, um, would be two, three times larger than it is already if Pittsburgh would just get out of its own way. And again, that's not real estate. That's just the reality but of the But there are direct stamp.
2: implications for real estate like oh, yeah. that. And I mean, the the one other thing that I had noted um, in the extensive research that I have done to Maragheny's platform. And <laughs> right before the event. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: uh,
2: you know, he talks about a conversion plan and uh the conversion plan obviously for converting commercial real estate downtown into residential and his direct comment was like you know we need to make downtown into a neighborhood because and i have heard this in all of the other commercial real estate events that i have attended in the past however many months we've been allowed to attend events um is like the whole live work play concept and his comment in this article was people are working and playing downtown, but there are not enough people live to live here that are supporting it as like a, um, not COVID proof, but like the, the uh, background of the conversation was like, COVID had a drastic impact on downtown because now people aren't really working down here at the volume that they used to be. People were never living downtown at the level that they have been living downtown in other major cities. Um, so it makes the play aspect hard. You know, a, a lot of businesses don't want to be downtown. So what are your thoughts on um, the conversion plan and uh, converting converting office properties or, or re, well, office properties, let's be honest, to residential in the downtown market?
1: I question whether or not we do have that kind of pent up demand to convert a lot of these properties. I think we have... I think we do have a demand to convert some, but like any other development opportunity, if 10 people do it exactly the same time, you know, you're going to have a glut in the market. Mm -hmm. And the guy who's first to market is probably going to do a little bit better or the guy who has better amenities. I don't know whether we have that ability to absorb it, but what will get away in the way of that before anything is not recovering from covid we have lost a lot of restaurants. We have lost a lot of businesses. And there is a reluctance to be downtown. Yeah,
2: you know, but it's kind of like, in my mind, like the chicken or the egg, you know? It, well, that with retail, but also for me, I'm as someone who used to live downtown, um, there was definitely a period where I stopped feeling safe downtown. And that this was like even pre-COVID. I, I left downtown, um, 28. No, 2019, yeah. um, I left downtown and for probably the last six months of the time that I lived there, um, I was just sensing like I I was not feeling the way I always used to feel. Like I used to just walk everywhere by myself at night. Um, never thought twice about it, but in the last six months I had like two particular experiences that just didn't make me feel safe. And now, when I think about moving downtown and I have a lot of friends who talk about living downtown, and they say the same thing they're like we just don't feel safe here so is it like that's where i think about the chicken and the egg thing where is like do you have to make downtown safe before people are willing to move back or will all of the people moving back to work here and live here will that make it safer
0: no i think you got to figure out clean and safe first yeah that's my
1: i think sense. It, but i think clean and safe are things that police presence and actual clean cleanup is probably something that is relatively easy to do. It's just focus efforts on it and try and do that. I think that you know, again, bringing the businesses back. but I do kind of think they'll come back in tandem that uh, the more people that are downtown doing activities, spending time here, recognizing that it's cleaner, recognizing that it's safer and recognizing that, that there are businesses that are open, then the residential component of it will will come. It's a lot easier to commit to a $200 dinner than it is to commit to a $2 million condo. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, it is so glaring that it's not clean and safe right now. Right. Because there's no one down here. I mean, we walked from our office today to the Fairmont and we saw 10 people, which is extremely depressing. But on top of that part is that it's just filthy. Like the city needs a deep cleaning. Um, But back to the real estate perspective of it. Yeah. There are too many class C B minus 1960 1950 sky rise office buildings that will forever be vacant, but for the conversion to Mm -hmm. uh, residential. So I think the mayor's spot on that. That's what's going to happen. That's absolutely true. And
1: And they, and they are, they are perfect
0: conversions. But they cost money and money that no one's going to spend unless they feel like it's clean and safe and they think they can attract the residents.
2: Well, <laughs> and also, I mean, then you talk about the include. Well, he just and said I, he I, was not going to do the inclusionary. Like the inclusionary zoning maybe didn't make sense for downtown at this point in time because right. we just need people down here. Right. Um,
0: but, yeah, if you do throw that on top of it, then it gets even more complicated. Yeah. Um, I'm actually bullish, though, about some of the conversion projects. I think there's some really exciting things happening on the conversion side in downtown. Um, And, you know, as someone who started their real estate career in office uh, leasing, there's nothing I would love more than for these buildings to get converted so that it shrinks the current.
1: Shrinks the inventory.
0: Shrinks the inventory because right now we've got too much inventory. Yeah. Um, And it would correct a lot of the negative things that are happening in the office market in Pittsburgh. Yeah.
1: In Philadelphia in 2008, the office glut was reduced dramatically by the fact that they had so many condo conversions yeah. in, in their downtown. They took a million square feet out of the downtown inventory that just uprighted all the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Makes a big difference.
2: So the the last, I think, the last rabbit hole – that I always like to go down, oh, my bleeding heart liberal self. Um, just, I I'm mean, kind. Of, just kidding, kind of. Not um, really. Well, like, but so I won't say that. So, like, r- restaurant. Like, I just stop love. Herself. It's like
0: a. It's like a literally, oh, this is a cliff not a political. It's not.
2: Can't. I'm just saying. Like, I'm making light of what Michael is saying in his brain. Um,
1: <laughs> in my brain. This
2: is on your face. <laughs> it's oozing out of your pores. Um, no, but I just like really love restaurants and I I want to see like the independent restaurant operator thrive and I love to be in cities that are filled with like great little hole in the wall independently owned restaurants and I think that is something that kind of lacks downtown here. I mean, we have a a couple independent operators. Um and I would love to see more of that. And back to the conversation that we had about how, you know, inclusionary zoning and, and these increased barriers to entry or the increased red tape to get to the development phase, um, it's weeding out yeah. the weeding out the the smaller developers, and then the larger developers obviously want, um, a lot of them look for like the national credit tenants that have the chain backing them or have you know the the reputation backing them that will be a draw to their properties rather than taking a chance on the smaller local independent operators so um i guess i just always like to talk about like how that can be reconciled or like what well, what a recipe for success is where we can still have cool independent properties downtown and developers who can afford to develop properties where they can take a risk and lease to those people like how does that work
1: well one of the things that i, I don't think that you'll ever bury with red tape is the entre- entrepreneurial spirit of some <laughs> oh of these people. i
2: love that michael <laughs>
1: <laughs> no i mean a, a guy who wants to start his own restaurant has a belief in his restaurant and obviously there's an there's an industry that's littered with failure but There is always that one that will rise, but there are always the other ones in line that want to take their shot. And I think if you have the critical mass of business that's down here, I'm gonna get the number wrong, but I I think in metropolitan Pittsburgh, 283,000 people live here. Not metropolitan, but the urban core of Pittsburgh. And then if you take the entire city, it's well over a million people. That's a lot of people that want the better mousetrap if the city could ever get their act in gear and streamline that process that would allow for that growth and that opportunity for someone that's not necessarily someone who's going to be coming out of innovation works or Carnegie Mellon, but maybe putting together clothing in their garage. I still think that there's all those opportunities. Now, this is one place where lenders have to actually believe in people, because that's probably how these guys are bootstrapping their companies. But I don't think
2: I don't think it's a lender conversation. I think it's a developer conversation. I'm talking about the developers of like the mixed use properties downtown yeah. and who they are willing to and who they are not willing to lease space to. I think it's
0: not about whether they're willing to or not willing to. I think what you're seeing happen and will continue to see is all of the conversion projects are. I think all, uh, I think I can even say all of them are by out of town developers, out of town developers who are dealing with lots of the red tape rubber stamps that we talked about, super complicated, extremely expensive margins are thin, but relative to San Francisco, Chicago, New York margins look really promising. Mm-hmm. So they jump in head first and now they're into a project. They're deep in the basis. And it's complicated and it's expensive. So when they go to fill what usually is the last pieces of the puzzle, which is the retail on the first floor, they need national credit because otherwise the project just doesn't work. And they're unwilling. And that's why you'll see storefronts sit vacant because they're unwilling to take the gamble on the entrepreneurial spirit. And it's a a vicious damned if you do, damned if you don't cycle that I think is going to continue to be exacerbated. I mean...
1: But it is a cycle. It's a cycle that will allow, it continually allow for small guys to just fit into spaces that actually exist and say, this is my idea. I think I can do better. And I don't I know mean, whether that's going to last, but that, that becomes kind of an urban flavor though.
2: Because, all, I mean, and when you think about it, like everyone now is talking about like live, work, play, live, work, play, live, work, play. And I was at an industry event a couple months back where it was just a panel of developers and they're all talking about, you know, the the neighborhood gritty feel of Pittsburgh and how there's so much hometown pride. But if you were an independent single unit restaurateur and you wanted to open a second space in, their, in one of their properties, 75% of the people on that stage that day would have taken a pizza hut over like your proven local independently owned concept right. because of the stability and there there was one because
0: at the end of the day they have to answer to a lender a lender right. who's saying i need you to pay your mortgage and they won't approve the independent entrepreneurial guy it's it's a problem so it's how, how does but
1: 25 of them that? would you have to find it i mean that's the. That's that. Well, that's that, that, that data set was just of the four developers <laughs> on the stage no, that day. No, so I, I, I those really metrics are think skewed. I don't think the numbers is as high
2: as twenty five percent. There's
1: there, there's people in this country that those are the guys that really want to. They're going to find a way. Not all of them. In fact, most of them shouldn't.
0: The entrepreneur will, but the, the general, entrepreneur will. From a real will. estate perspective, she's dead on. from a real estate
1: that. perspective, it also, then it becomes finding the right guy. That and is though but if you want to make risk.
2: like so all of these developers are talking about how Pittsburgh is unique because we have that hometown pride, and we have a lot of cool things going on here, but now they want to make the like the downtown, like the CBD of Pittsburgh, the live work play place, but I don't see how you do that because even if I live downtown, I would be going to the suburbs to the smaller mom and pop's places where it's a generational yinzer landlord that rented to the new startup restaurant and it's the spot so like I still think a lot of people that will live downtown will go outside of downtown to try like the authentic Pittsburgh we'll call them culinary experiences well, so if you want to make Pittsburgh the CBD like a true live work play epicenter like I think that that's something that's going to have to be reconciled in some kind of way whether it's like food hall like but, I, but, I don't but, know if that. But I makes think sense every every but.
1: urban core in the country, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Charleston, they all have their CBD plays. They're they're all trying to be the same kind of thing: live, work, play. We just have to find out what what is Pittsburgh's version of that,
2: and will it dilute like Pittsburgh?
0: I think there's a real. Possibility. I mean, a uh, uh, current example is in downtown Mount Lebanon right now. There's a Yinzer owner of a piece of property who is trying to put a Yinzer uh, entrepreneurial spirit into their space for about a third of what it would cost in the normal course. The day that building sells to a non Yinzer, immediately that developer will say they want three times the rent. And guess what? Three times the rent means that entrepreneur can't come in. So yeah, it, you are you are picking up on a very real um, world situation. Um, part of the reason we fell in love with the city when we moved here years ago is it's like a woven fabric of mess. Like you drive through the first time, and you're like, what is this place? Nobody planned it. The streets are crazy. You drive down Banksville Road, you turn to each side and you're like, what? Was there zoning ever here? Um, which is awesome because it creates that entrepreneurial spirit that you're talking about. But yeah, as time goes on and, um, zoning gets put in place, inclusionary zoning gets put in place, uh, you will lose that fabric. And that's a, that's a complicated thing that we are certainly not going to solve on podcast number one or ever Mm -hmm. for that matter
2: one more glass of bourbon, and I'm But like, I Domastic. do believe I do believe
1: that there will be there are more than enough backfill uses and potential and concepts that will continue to keep that Pittsburgh feel that organic this is what we are and they might not last forever but they will always be something there that is new that will keep the vitality of what it is that you're trying to accomplish
2: yeah. but in downtown though
1: yeah
0: yeah I think so I mean, yeah
1: I think someone even though Amazon
0: was never gonna come here as HQ2 the video that Pittsburgh did for that attraction program was incredible
2: oh yeah the Pittsburgh PR situation is they're really good at it I mean they're really good at painting the picture of a hub of innovation you know uh culture, like a food scene, but
1: we're still a third tier. I don't wanna say
2: like I don't wanna say but like that that's not the case, but I also think that to get that authentic Pittsburgh experience that they are doing a really good job of painting the picture of right now, you have to leave the C B D for that to happen.
1: Yeah, I mean we're we're a third tier community. I mean in the whole scheme of, you know, America, um you know, everybody else is 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 selling that image. Boston's selling that image. Philly's selling that image. Cleveland's selling that image. Baltimore, Washington, Charleston. But it's, it's this is just Pittsburgh's image.
2: But I do, I feel like, and I mean, maybe I'm a little, I feel like Philly does a better job of having like, a more, and maybe they have more sprawl than we have. I mean, they do have more sprawl than we have. They but have
0: more people. A lot more people.
2: Yeah, but I mean they do. You can walk down the street in Philly and you can be at a chain restaurant in 1 second and then a hole it's in a the wall. It's I mean totally a people thing.
1: When you start getting into the difference between okay, there's 1 million people in this metropolitan area. Yeah, that's a lot of people. I think
0: it's 2 million by the way.
1: But <clears throat> but, but whatever the number is, you know, when you talk about Atlanta, there's 7 million people. I mean, just by accident you're going to get commerce simply from the amount of people so there are different mechanics of that and i think sometimes those decisions about where should we go you know you're you're going to choose the a and b locations and you know when you get to the C, you know that's it it takes a long time to grow your own and And, the
0: long time i mean bringing it full circle back to it's really complicated to do real estate here and it's really complicated to get through the process, which only makes whether it's mayor Ganey or developer XYZ or Oakland or Walnut capital or whoever it is, when it takes nine, 12, 18 months to get to the finish line on a project, any changes take forever to happen. And that's that much what, harder. Yeah. That much harder. Cause it can't change in three months. It's going to take years. Um, so I think, yeah, that's yeah. probably the end of round With around.
2: that, that we're we're done. We well, we we never talked about the bourbon, so just really quickly. Oh geez. We yeah, didn't really quickly, just so that they can track like the people that don't the listen to this, the, the people that this. won't listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, but just a so week, personally, <laughs> track the bourbons that we like and don't like, and the patterns here, because traditionally. Michael and I agree on more bourbons than Kevin and I agree on. Correct. Um, so, did you like this?
1: Well, the second glass was much better than the <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. first. <laughs> Funny how that <laughs> happens. Isn't that
0: the usual outcome?
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. No, it's not bad. I enjoyed it.
2: Yeah. I would agree, though. I was hesitant with the first. I mean...
0: The smell is... Really aggressive.
2: Still, you think though? No,
0: not
1: yeah.
2: No. Yeah, like at three not p at, at three p m. 3 p. m. <laughs> it yeah. seemed like a lot.
0: Three p m on a Tuesday sounded like a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's yeah pretty good. Uh, <laughs> pretty good bite to start with, um, but then it kind of mellowed with age.
2: Yeah, I relate.
0: Are we going to rate it or no? No, no I don't think we're going to rate it because...
1: Because I'll right. rate them all the same. Right yeah. now it's a 10.
2: You'll rate them all the same except for like <laughs> Redneck Jim Bob's whiskey. You'll be like, this is delicious. Old Granddad, yeah. are you kidding me? It's fantastic. No, it wasn't Old Granddad. It was like Redneck something mm-hmm. that you were like... On the blind taste test, you insisted that that was the nicer bourbon. Oh, oh, that's yeah. the one I what got was it? from was You West got West yeah. birthday. It was yeah. like some kind of like...
0: Old redneck was what it was. Yeah, called. old redneck. No, hillbilly.
2: Hillbilly, Hill, something hillbilly. hillbilly bourbon. Yeah. yeah, loved it.
0: Ten bucks a bottle. Can't beat it. This
2: fool's been buying fifty-dollar bottles of bourbon. Prefers no. the ten-dollar bottle. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a wrap. Yeah. Wrap. Well, cheers. It's a wrap. Thanks for not listening. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, that's fun.